Tonight on Arena, Sinead Gleeson on her new edition of Maeve Brennan's The Long-Winded Lady and photographer Deirdre Brennan on a set of portraits of women named Bridget. Five one double five one is the text. You can tweet the program at RTE Arena. From nineteen fifty four to nineteen eighty one, Dublin born writer Maeve Brennan wrote for the New Yorker's Talk of the Town column under the pen name The Long Winded Lady. During that lady, in fact in nineteen sixteen during that time, I beg your pardon, in fact in nineteen sixty nine, a collection of forty seven of those pieces was published using that pen name as a title. Maeve Brennan's funny, steely, often sad sketches of New York life were enormous popular, but also critically admired. She cut a smart and stylish dash at the New Yorker where she became a staff writer. And there are those who believe that she was the inspiration for Truman Capote's uh, most enduring fictional character, Holly Golightly, from Breakfast at Tiffany's. A new edition of The Long-Winded Lady is being published by Peninsula Press with an introduction by Sinead Gleeson. Sinead joins me now. Um, just to, get, to remind people of this uh, Ranla woman who became this wonderful writer for the New Yorker magazine. Give us a little bit of her background here in Ireland before she ever went near New York, Sinead. Well, she was born in, in 1917 in Dublin and uh, her her family had, been, had very strong connections to, to the rising and, and politics in Ireland. Um, she moved with her family to Washington uh, when she was 17 because her father, Robert, um, who was also a writer, had been appointed what is essentially the kind of, um, uh, in a large diplomatic role to Ireland, the first um Ambassador, that's the mm. word I'm looking for. Um, so the family went to America, they went to Washington. Maeve later went to New York. The family re- returned, but Maeve, I think, had found something in America that she hadn't uh, found in Ireland. And I think had, through a series of jobs, she worked in fashion. Um, she'd been mentored by Carmel Snow, who'd been, who's an Irish woman herself. And eventually in 1949, got this staff job at the New Yorker, originally kind of writing bits and pieces, doing book reviews, and eventually started to submit not just the, the talk of the town pieces later on, but her own wonderful short story. So mm. but someone who'd been writing all, all of her life, but for someone who spent all of her life in America, her, her uh, mind and imagination in the fiction anyway, always strayed back across the Atlantic to, to Ireland. Yeah, it is interesting that the, the and this set of essays that we're talking about this evening, uh, all nonfiction pieces about New York. She was writing in the New Yorker magazine. <laughs> kind of understandable that she might be looking out the window and talking about the things she was seeing there. But when it came to, to fiction, that she she kept that imaginative landscape of her own hometown uh, for that particular area of her work. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the first seven or so stories in the Springs of Affection, she doesn't even change the the address mm. in Ranala, which is 48 Sherryfield Avenue. She doesn't change the names of her sisters. Um, it's very, very rooted in her own life. And mm. all of the fiction is very interior, domestic. It's in the small confines, almost claustrophobic. But this writing, these pieces about New York are all exterior. They're all about walking the streets and the parks uh, and, and, you know, basically walking up and down this, this kind of island that is Manhattan. So it's a very external exterior work and really in contrast to the fiction, which is really insular and, and inside if you like and, and yeah I suppose she's in the she's in the centre of the fiction you could say in, in some ways whereas in the non-fiction work in this uh, set of essays The Long-Winded Lady she likes to be almost invisible she's standing on the outside watching all the time looking at something looking out a window looking from her hotel room sitting in a, in a restaurant looking at what's happening out on the on the, the sidewalk as she would call it uh, obviously in New York out at the footpath looking at life going past Yeah she talks about she writes one voice in a piece called Broccoli where she says there's a great joy in being unseen and again you know there's, there's an invisibility if you're a woman in a city sometimes and again it's Maeve navigating the city as a, as a woman alone as a woman walking around and um, so she says at one point that she calls small inexpensive restaurants or the home fires in New York so she spends a lot of time in restaurants and she lists all these places and it's it's actually really interesting if you if you dive into these pieces you start looking up all the places she went to as I've done many times hmm. and lots of them aren't there which is a lot of what these essays are about. They're very, they have a very time capsule sort of um, uh, element to them. So she looks out the window. She often brings like a, a, a copy of a magazine, or she'll bring a book just for the purpose of eavesdropping and nosing on people's lives. So that's what the pieces are. In very much the same way that Maeve Binchy often talked mm. about using her her ears as a tape recorder. I think Maeve very much did this, listening and looking and watching at people. And if you're sitting in the window. 
people going past don't often notice that you're there. So they're very, very omniscient and it's very much about her. And no, no thing is too small. I mean, it can be dogs and cats and pieces of broccoli. It doesn't have to be about the, the buildings and the politics or lovers' tiffs. You know, it's about that she can find meaning in, in, in the most insignificant of objects and situations. Yeah, there's one particular piece that stood out to me in that regard, the solitude of their expression, where she really is looking at this man. I, th- I think she has seen on, on numerous occasions walking around the streets of New York, but she starts really to look at him and look at, from the outside, at the interiority of his life. Yeah, she does that with lots of the people she looks at. There's 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 often occasionally there's judgment of the people she looks at, but very often there isn't. There's empathy. She's looking at them. She's trying to put herself in people's shoes and imagine them. That same piece actually has a, an incredible scene where she's looking across at a building uh, and there's a woman reading a letter by the window. And as she finishes each page, she drops <laughs> the page out the window. And I'm just thinking, what was in the letter that you have to keep firing it out the window? It's also that that piece is also one of the great examples that recurs all through the book of her talking about the, the buildings, the geography, the layout of New York. She's very good at this kind of personification, you know, talking about the Empire State Building being self-satisfied and, and being on nudging terms with other buildings in the city. And she talks about the city with an, an awful lot of love, but an awful lot of regret because it's changing it's her adopted city, the place she calls home, having left Dublin behind. And right around her ears, she talks about this horror of the white wreckers dust because New York is being pulled down, demolished. There are new buildings she loves, restaurants she used to sit in are disappearing all the time. And New York is still very like that, as you know. There's always that, yeah. you know, those those that green scaffolding everywhere you go in the city. And, and she's lamenting that very early on as, as feeling because there is a very, you know, un, unmoorishness about Maeve and a lot of her writing. And it's there in this book that she's constantly very kind of kinetic, very peripatetic. She's moving around the whole time, um, never standing still. And, and she was like that in her own personal life, I think. So this writing is very reflective, I think, of how she actually lived day to day. Yeah, there's another one that talks about um, a farmhouse being moved down to literally been dug up. Literally been dug up. Yeah, yeah. And again, she's she's talking about like you know New York can be very the places she lived were often kind of grotty and inexpensive, Mm. and she lived in small hotels. And she talks about hating the fact that there are more cars and they steal the life out of the place. She talks about warehouses being burly nursemaids. And there's so much of the book that that she thinks of of it's kind of psychogeography. Like she thinks of the buildings as as people with their own personality and traits and woes and some of it is very just very kind of elegiac and, and melancholic but she can be very mm. funny as well you know But I'm really struck by the quotation that you give at the beginning of your own introduction it is necessary this is um, you're quoting Maeve Brennan it is necessary to find one's own way in New York New York is not hospitable and then at the end of that paragraph she, you know she says not that it's any better or any worse than it used to be the city holds us and we don't know why it, how much does that tell us about her relationship with the city? It's, it's, it's very ambivalent there. Yeah, very much so. I mean, there's a famous line of Maeve's where she calls herself a traveller in residence. And, you know, everybody knows that she, she famously was able to fit all of her belongings in one taxi because she moved so much and she just couldn't literally. There's a restlessness that she couldn't stay in one place. And yet she never left New York. I mean, she went upstate and she went out to Long Island, but she never fundamentally never. She, she did come back to Ireland, but n- never lived anywhere else. It was a place that had a, a kind of a hold on her. And she talks, imagines herself in one of the pieces in living in Marseille or in Amsterdam. But She's she's too te- tethered to New York, and we know that she will never never leave. But I think a lot of the 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 I think that the loneliness that comes through in the pieces is that fear of change, and that the city she loves and the places she likes to go to are, are constantly disappearing all around her. So there is a kind of a a, a saudad and a sadness throughout mm. all the pieces. But they're so they're so economic. They're very very short. These pieces. Um, I I think I think think they're very like um Clarice Lispector, the Brazilian writer, wrote these things called Cronicas about Rio de Janeiro. Also very short, very episodic but packs so much into a small visit. She was brilliant at kind of distillation um, and often it's just one scene, just a, a one kind yeah. of trigger. People arguing, you know, a wrong dish coming out in a restaurant, a, a woman singing at the top of her voice in the street are all, they were, we're all content, if you like. So she, her eyes and ears were always open and on. But for, for all of that um, attitude to the city itself, Yet we have, and I suppose it was Angela Burke's uh, 2004, the book, the book she wrote, Maeve Brennan, Homesick at the New Yorker. It, mm. Angela puts forward this idea that perhaps she was the model for Holly Golightly in, in, in Breakfast at Tiffany's, which suggests a different kind of a different kind of woman within New York. 
Well, she was extremely glamorous. I mean, this is the famous thing. You've probably seen the, the Carl Bissinger photograph of her looking mm. very elegant, holding a cigarette with her hair piled up. Um, I mean, she was uh, loved to go out, loved a martini, could drink most of the New Yorker staff under the table, apparently, mm-hmm. um, was was a very was a, a sort of a, a social butterfly and, and, you know, moved around the city, moved around the bars. But there's always in all of her life and all through Angela's wonderful book, which is 20 years old and a book that, you know, introduced me and many people to Maeve and her writing. Um, that book actually really gets across the idea that there's a, there's, there's a constant loneliness, a constant unsettledness in Maeve's life. And I think that loads of these pieces come out of that fact of, of, of moving around, of never being in one place and always feeling that maybe somehow, even though you love the city, it's your adopted city and you don't maybe really belong. Because her Irishness was still always there. It's not so much in these pieces, but there's very much a, a question of Maeve being very connected to to her Irishness. Yeah, but I was, I was uh, uh, surprised to realise that she had two sets of short stories um, in and out of Never Neverland in Neverland, from 19, yeah. uh, 1969 and Christmas Eve from 1974. Were they only published in New York? They weren't published in, in, in Ireland or in the UK or in Europe at all. No, she was never published in her, in her lifetime outside of there. And there, again, that was all of her New Yorker work. So it wasn't mm. until say, the 1990s when Counterpoint started to publish the work. Um, William Maxwell, obviously, who'd been her editor at The New Yorker, was a huge champion and got the work and wrote the foreword for those collections in Counterpoint. So there have been smaller other editions. I mean, obviously, the Sting Fly in Ireland have done great work with this. Yeah. And I believe are going to republish The Rose Garden this year with an introduction by Angela Burke, which is wonderful to hear. So there's a lot more people know about Maeve now, but there is such a tiny body of work. There's just these this nonfiction two short story collections and one brilliant novella called The Visitor. But there were no novels, there were no plays, you know, there was just this it's just a small body of work for mm. somebody who was quite, quite prolific in terms of all she wrote. She was also the first woman, the talk of the town column in The New Yorker still exists and she was the first woman to, to, to ever write it, which I think is a, a huge thing. And, and the fact that she called the co- <laughs> referred to herself as the long-winded lady, when in fact she was quite the opposite. She was very yeah. economic in the way she wrote. Yeah, and I think that there was, you know, that that suggests that she's this kind of boring gas bag or that she's mm. going to, you know, show you these kind of gossipy longers. And some of the pieces are kind of gossipy. There's a piece where she's listening to two women talk about another woman who, and they say that she doesn't count for much, like incredibly bitchy sort of peaches, pieces. But but there's there's nothing kind of gossipy or longerish about Maeve's. They're, they're, they're very... Um, they're very intense pieces. They're very well thought out pieces. They're often, they, they seem quite stream of consciousness. And yet they're very, I mean, there's a lot in common. I talk about the fact that, you know, May was born on July 6th. It's the day that the dead by by, by mm. Joyce has said. And there's a there's a very kind of peripatetic, paramblatory nature to her work. And that has a lot in common with Ulysses as just the stream of consciousness element of it. So it's also proof that you can, you know, if you walk out into the street, you'll find something to write about. And, and but, no, you know, not all of us, not, most of us can't write like May Brennan, obviously. And, and did people, did people in New in New York, I mean, obviously close friends may have known, although it doesn't sound as if she had an enormous coterie of friends around her. Did they know who the long-winded lady was or was it a totally, you know, effective pseudonym that kept her out of public the public eye? Oh yeah, I would. I mean, a lot of people in the New Yorker staff would have as well. And there's a there's a, a line where she talks about somebody wrote in a fan, you know, wrote in asking to, to see if there'd be more work by her. And she said that you know Miss Miss Brennan is dead. She'd attempted to she shot herself in the confessional um, uh, with the aid of a small hand mirror and and Fra- made a joke about Frank O'Connor being the priest in the confessional box. So so people outside of the magazine wouldn't. But that to this day, the those pieces, those columns are always written anonymously. And I think there's a freedom in that kind yeah. of anonymity that allowed her to say whatever she wanted and allowed her to not have to justify what she wrote about her that people maybe she didn't want people to connect the non-fiction to the, to the fiction yeah. because they are extremely different so it allowed that kind of it allowed a, a, a freedom in subject matter and possibly even in style because they're very different to the short the short stories in, in yeah. many ways yeah it, it, included in this edition where you've given us the introduction you also give us the the author's note immediately afterwards which is obviously Maeve Brennan's own note um, and, yeah. and, and she talks about herself in the third person there's a line that says even after more than 25 years the long-winded lady cannot think of herself as a real New Yorker. Um, how how tongue-in-cheek was she, do you think, when she said that? 
I, I actually find that line really sad and I yeah. don't know if it, it's tongue and, and cheek because there is all over Maeve's writing, especially this these essays about New York, there is a sense of her being constantly on the move and never feeling like she belongs. And again, there's, there's a huge amount of addresses, there's a huge amount of small hotels, small apartments. I mean, loads of the work she talks about where she lived or the, it had, you know, no heating or there was no mirror or there was too many stairs, that, you know, where she breaks a heel running down the steps. And um, she's constantly in flux. And I think that that flux of Maeve's life is con- is reflected in what's going on in New York, a constantly changing city where, where you know, different people are arriving, that the, the buildings are going up, some are coming down and all the things that were solidity to her and routine to her are starting to change. And again, you know, we, we know in the later part of Maeve's life, her, her life sort of fell apart in many ways, it, that half capsized, which is the word she used about New York as a city. And I think that that's um, that that lack of of an anchor is, is possibly, you know, the, the very early roots of what happened to her later on. But but also I think she was she was kind of flighty. She liked to move around. She didn't like to be pinned down. And I liked that. I think I always say that, I, you know, if Maeve had stayed here, maybe she wouldn't have been a writer. Yeah. She would have been there were a lot of societal expectations on women in Ireland at that time. And she would not have been able to just wander around and drink martinis and bars on her own. You know, so how, how, I think they'd offered a lot. How sad was that ending? You know, uh, how 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 badly did it all fall apart towards the end of her life? Yeah, very, very badly. And I, I always kind of say with a caveat that I, I really like to focus on the living mm. part and the writing part of Maeve's life. But but it is really tragic. I mean, she had mental health issues. There was alcoholism there. Um, everybody may know the story of her, that she was living in a room adjacent to the, the ladies' toilets in The New Yorker. As Again, because she, she was starting to lose her mind, but that was the place that she called home. The New Yorker offices yeah. were some of the happiest years of her life. So she went back there and then, you know, did, died. And as I say, died without an obituary being published in Ireland or the UK about her work. But thankfully, there has been a huge sea change. And I think Angela Burke's book started that. Yeah. And there's been more additions and, and more recognition of her work. And not, not least because the a, a plaque was unveiled on the house um, earlier this month. Ah, well, no, it wasn't Rally. just, it wasn't unveiled in a passive way. You unveiled it yourself on January the 6th of this year, um, Sinead. Well, Your modesty. There's Your modesty are not allowing who, you to uh, say that. Go ahead. Well, well, there's a lot of people who I think have been, and that the Dublin City Libraries have to, are to be uh, uh, much applauded for this, as has the Lord Mayor. Um, and I think it, it's it's long overdue, but it's wonderful that it's there because mm. the, that house is so central to the fiction. It's literally I've been in it, and there are details in the house that are in the story that it's and it's it's just very touching and and about time that the plaque is there. Yeah, so it's, I, it's, I remember Eamon Morrissey had the the one man show in in the Peacock, which it's, he house, lived in yes, that house yes. himself at one point along the way when when you when you're in that house and and when you read the fiction then as opposed to this set of essays the long-winded lady yeah. d- how different is the Maeve Brennan that you see in those Irish based writings Oh, they're so different. I mean, those, those they're also sto- stories that I, I feel are very ahead of their time in terms of um, what it, t- talking about Irish marriages and relationships and these kind of haunted, terrible marriages where people are forced to live in the same house and really hate each other with little gestures like closing the door just before um, someone catches you do it because you don't want to see them. Um, and, and, you know, the hierarchies in these houses are really sort of um, uh, sour and, and awful. Um, but it's funny, some of the pieces, actually, the, new, the long-winded lady pieces end up in the fiction or vice versa. So she kind of swam. There's hmm. a blurring of the line with like the, the you know, um, the, this a snowy, um, snowy night on 43rd Street, I think it is, where she's definitely using some of the material and she sort of gravitates between both. So there is a kind of fluidity in the writing. But but Maven, those stories is so pre- precise. Um, yeah. they're, they're, and, and she returns the same characters, the Baggets, the Durdens. She can't get away from them. But also she doesn't allow us out of the house. The, those stories are so claustrophobic and difficult to read that you and you feel because of all the detail, sofas, carpets, yeah. you know, row ceilings, you feel you're in the room and you can't get out. You're, you're eavesdropping just as Maeve was eavesdropping in New York. Finally, Sinead, Anne Enright writing about um, Maeve Brennan in 2016 said that she didn't have to be a woman for her work to be forgotten, though it surely helped to what extent was that a huge part of just her simply her being a woman, a huge part of the reason that the writing didn't get beyond the New Yorker? Mind the New Yorker is quite a place to be published, obviously, but that it didn't make its way uh, to Ireland and England and to Europe. 
Yeah, I think I think Anne was very spot on with that line at the time. Um, it happened to, to Maeve and a lot of uh, contemporary writers at the time, considering how much fiction Maeve published in The New Yorker at the time when Frank O'Connor himself would have been there, who, who, who was writing a lot about the short story as a form and, and seems to have never really talked about or engaged with them, his work when they were both publishing at The New Yorker, it, you know, when the likes of Mary Lavin and Elizabeth Bohm were also publishing there. So I always find it very strange that he, he was just seemed to be quite averse or not interested in, in the things mm. she had to say. And that happens sometimes. Maybe because, you know, some of those it's set in a house, it's about relationships. Maybe he thought it was domestic and small, but in fact, it's actually incredibly um, political um, and uh, powerful and, and, and not small or domestic at all. But, yeah, it, it's I, I find it really striking that he didn't champion yeah, her work. It's, it seems you very know. odd for sure. Thanks for being yeah. with us this evening, Sinead. Thank you, Sean. That's uh, Sinead Gleeson, who has written the introduction to a new publication of The Long-Winded Lady, the essays of Maeve Brennan, and that new publication is published by Peninsula Press. This February, we will, of course, be celebrating St. Bridget's Day, our newest national holiday, and to mark the occasion, the festival Bridget, Dublin City Celebrating Women, will be returning for its third outing, a programme of citywide celebrations. Part of the festival gives shows us the work of photographer Deirdre Brennan. Her newest work, which is called Looking for Bridget, will be projected after dark at Bernardo Square from February the 4th through until February the 5th. Deirdre used the 1500th anniversary of St Bridget's death as a vehicle to consider the lives of contemporary Irish women and children in Ireland, creating a series of photographic portraits of women and children named Bridget's along with other variations of the name. Delighted that Deirdre Brennan is with me in studio this evening. I just love the idea <laughs> that you... Let's go straight for the name. It's a wonderful way of looking at how contemporary uh, Irish women might relate to this hero of uh, Irish story, if you like, in Irish history, who up until now, was, or up until recently, was often put into the halfpenny place, yeah, second place. Now she's having a renaissance. <clears throat> sure is. Yeah. So uh, where did you come up with the idea? I'll just find out people named Breach, Bridget, Brid and all the, all the variations. Well, it's funny um, because a lot of my, wor- my work, um, I use historical and literary anniversaries as a way to, it's like using the past um, to, con- to consider the present. Mm. And it's a great structure within which to work. Um, so, uh, you know, I was last in with you, my, with my book following Ulysses and I did um, a project with the Bloody Sunday families. I did a, a portrait photography project on the 100th anniversary of the Irish state. And then every year I I start to worry and wonder what mm, this year's next? inspiration is <laughs> yeah. going to be. And um, so like all good ideas, it came to me while I was making a cup of tea. And I think maybe Bridget sent it to me because I had wasn't thinking about it at all. Mm. And I suppose I, I, I listen to the radio all day long if I can. So I probably was hearing things about Bridget's 15th anniversary. I remember it was around this time last year. It was one morning I was making a cup of tea and the idea just presented it in my head. I'll do a portrait photography project and women named Bridget. And then I thought, oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> that's yeah. such a great, <laughs> it's, it's such a great, um, it was almost like it wasn't my idea because it just presented itself. So then. Um, did you put out, did you, simple, did you literally put out the call saying, if your name is Bridget, D-G-E-T-D-G-I-D, well, I said Breed, that. all sorts I took of things. the B-R-I-G-I-D, or its iterations, mm. Breed, Bridey. Um, so with all photography projects, the initial stage. Um, so I didn't really start looking for Bridget's until maybe uh, last September. So you narrowed it down a little bit then, did you? I'm that sorry? Point? You narrowed it down from all the iterations of the name to specifically Bridget. Oh, no, no. I, I looked for all the iterations yeah. of the name, but the theme of is just looking oh, for Bridget. Right, yes, uh, yeah. ah, you know, gotcha, as, yeah. as like that. I, I just think it's a lovely title. Um, So it, like with all my photography projects, it usually takes a, a long time to figure out how the project is going to look. And I was thinking about, you know, the visual of mm. Bridget, like fire, washer, her cloak. And I couldn't, um, you know, with the Bloody Sunday families, I projected their their images onto the handkerchief of Father Edward Daly. So, and that took me months to 
come to that conclusion. Mm. So it wasn't really till around the summer that I'd resolved how the project was going to look. And I came up with the idea of that women would would hold, just so it doesn't look like an ordinary photograph, that women would hold an object that had some meaning to them, either to their own lives, their works, or the saint, or the deity. Um, and then I um, had a... Well, let's let's look yeah, at the sorry. specifics of one sure, of those yeah. images because yeah. I think mm-hmm. the, the holding of an item, in particularly sure. in this, I'm look, I'm thinking now of the picture of Bridget McDermott um, holding, uh, which we can see is a framed photograph of three people in her hand. Explain who Bridget McDermott is and her story. Um, Bridget McDermott is the lady who lost three of her children in the Stardust tragedy, and I had. William George and Marcella. William George and Marcella. And I had been covering um, the first morning of the the Stardust Inquiry. Mm. Remember, there was a gathering at the Garden of Remembrance. So I was uh, photographing that event and I... um, I took... I I was taking my captions and my notes and then it dawned on me a couple of weeks later that her name was Bridget. And I thought... Could I approach her to see if she would be interested? I just thought maybe it would be just really too difficult. Mm. So I had her daughter's number and I called her and she said she actually would be really happy to participate in it. It's such a powerful image of um, her. At RTE Arena, by the way, if you want to see these images on Twitter. She stands there and she's holding the framed pictures of her three children in in her hand. It says so much that holding of those pictures. Sure, and you know her, her, her. The the quote she gave me was, "These are my children. I love them. Present I tense. miss them. God bless them." And um, but her story about because sometimes the name Bridget people don't necessarily have an association with it. Um, but she said that, you know. It, I was I was speaking with her daughter on Sunday because the Irish Times had done some really nice coverage mm. of this whole and uh, uh, Bridget was on the front cover and her daughter called me to say how she delighted uh, she was with it. But, um, you know, she said that losing three children almost destroyed the family. But uh, Bridget's faith in her name, that she had derived a lot of faith in the name. From that, yeah. And strength. And a lot of the women have said this. I wondered about that, what, what yeah. connections they might. Let, let's put up another image and, and maybe we can talk a bit further about this. And this is a breach this time that breach, we're going to. Yeah. Breach, yeah. breach Logue at yeah. RTE Arena. Breach Logue is holding an iron in, She's holding in her an right iron. hand. And she, I, I love this image because I remember uh, the Playhouse in Derry. I've, I did I've quite an, I did quite a lot of work with them. During, they've been quite good mm. to me around the Bloody the bloody Sunday um, project and as were the Bloody Sunday Trust and the Free Derry Museum. But they gave me a studio for two days. Um, so I photographed a lot of Derry bridges, which were wonderful, great. I, lo- I love working. My mother was from the north, so um, I just, I love working mm. up there. Um, so anyway, Bridget, I remember she came in in the morning and she was Bridget just Logue. wearing yeah. um, a fleece. And so I was a little disappointed. And then she took out her grandmother's dress, Bridget Logue. And she said, this was my grandmother's dress that she would wear when people were coming to the house. It was her good dress. And um, she was widowed at a, you know, because a lot Mm. of the stories behind the project is always really important to me, the strength of the story. So, um, So she, this was her good dress. And then she had been widowed at a very young age and was left with six children. So she threw herself into, she went from riches to rags and she threw herself into domestic um, work as a source of solace. So that was the iron that her mother used to, her grandmother used to um, to iron the clothes with because she had two priests who were sons. She said there was a lot of black clothes to be ironed, but also they had to be good quality. They had to be wool. Yeah. And um, that actually 
was quite difficult for her because she was struggling. So and I, lo- I love was, the idea yeah. that that Breege is wearing her the grandmother's dress. dress that's because it gives it a kind of a lineage right it's, back. Which it is, is, and it's a beautiful dress. Yeah, I thought yeah. she looked great. In yeah, it's, it, it is. It is a beautiful it, image. You know, yeah. uh, final one that I'll talk about is um, Bridget Leahy, and I'll give the quote that Bridget had, that this is a younger younger woman here. Yeah. My name is Bridget Leahy, and I am a Vietnamese Irish American actress and writer living in Dublin. Um, tell me a little bit about her. She's, I can't quite, what she got in her hand or she just... She's wearing a traditional Vietnamese dress. Mm. Um, she's Vietnamese, Irish, American. Her, she's from California. Her um, mother was one of the 1970s boat people and her father was Irish, American, originally from Cork. And, um, her father was a great um, admirer of Leon Urish, the writer Trinity, yes. and uh, Mila 18. And I lived beside, there were so many coincidences in this project. I used to live beside Leon. I remember the last day I met him and I was like, oh, I knew Leon. <laughs> so, and she was named after Leon. Um, so she's a... a uh, an actress and a writer and she's married to an Irish man so that's why she's living in Dublin um, but she would say that she saw Bridget as a feminist figure that a woman who um, at a time when women mm. did not have a lot of agency um, took power into her Absolutely, own hands yeah. and a, a lot of women would say that how they saw Bridget you might just figure. finally you might explain to me, Deirdre, how these. I love the idea that they're going to be projected up uh, onto. Uh, explain how that's going to work. Well, I um I was just speaking with Amy when I by email when I came in. It's going to be you know beside City Hall. There's a square there, and then you have the modernist. It's a Falchar Ireland building, mm. and there's a great wall at the side of that. It's actually great for projections. I've seen projections there on Culture Night, so they're going to be project. I mean, proportionately, they'll probably be three quarters of the size of a building. So all these women are going to be. Massive on the side of the Big building. Big statement on the side and of the building. And a lot of them are travelling from like Donegal and Derry and for the exhibition, which is wonderful. And, and there'll be a lot of Bridgets in town then for the <laughs> yeah. during that period of the <laughs> yeah. exhibition. Yeah. But listen, it does sound fascinating. Um, finally, for you, the character of Bridget, what, what is she for you as in the saint? Well, I always have a St. Bridget's Cross because it protects a house from wanting evil spirits so I think every house should have one um, so I didn't necessarily it was always the cross I always liked yeah. to have it above the door in the house um, but I think I have a newfound through working through this project I think I'll have a newfound faith there you go. Yeah. In, in St. Bridget herself. In St. Bridget, the Bridget yeah. Cross yeah. is a very powerful symbol. It was yeah, a symbol absolutely. of this station for a long, long time. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, uh, that's Deirdre Brennan. And uh, the exhibition that Deirdre has been talking about uh, with us is called Looking for Bridget, projected onto the Palace Building on Bernardo Square in Dublin from February the 1st, right there for it to start, right through onto the 5th as part of the Bridget 2024 Festival. Between 1520 and 1590, the art world went on a bender and did things it had never done before. That's what the Sunday Times art critic Valdemar Januszczyk in the, it says in a strange about the strange period between the Renaissance and the rise of Baroque art. Uh, he calls it man. He doesn't call it in, and the period called mannerism, where we had a wild explosion of color and imagery. And this new documentary series on Sky, the art critic looks at the creative start to the moment with the stunning bright colours of Michelangelo's painted, uh, that he painted on the Sistine Chapel. Joined this evening by Jess Mahi, who's been watching the documentary and can tell us a bit more about this brief moment in art history, mannerism. It, it, they, they start off with two big pillars, Jess, one of which has Renaissance written on it and another of which has Baroque written on it. And he, um, Vald- Valdemar has a, has a kind of a balloon beach ball, beach ball in his mm-hmm. hand. And he's squeezing mm-hmm. mannerism in between the two. Yeah. It kind of 
feeding, <laughs> feeding us. It's very gently there, isn't he? Not yeah, very subtle. Not very subtle. Um, I think the documentary overall is a lot of fun because he does use props in a weird mm. way. Some of them not entirely appropriate, I would say, but still fun. And I think that's a good representation of the movement itself because it's sandwiched in between the High Renaissance and the Baroque. The High Renaissance is all about perfection. It's all about this sort of um, high point in mankind, all these great achievements. And then Proportion, everything, classical proportions, classical colours. harmony, all of that. And then the Baroque on the other side is very serious, very dramatic, very intense. And in the middle, you just have this weird sort of um, crazy, strange, sexy um, uh, artists sort of bringing out this stuff that is unusual and different and seems to be a continuation of the High Renaissance in an extreme way, but also a reaction against it. And this um, thing where artists want to be different, they want mm. to stand out from the High Renaissance, but they see themselves still as a continuation of it too. So it's a little problematic, yeah. but it is fun and it's kind of the fun side of who we are. And it's a bit of the dirtier side, I think, of who we are too. Yes, you gave it a very, you gave it a very pithy description um, mm. just before we came to air. Can you remember the precise way you put it? I can't. I <laughs> can't. Why sexy weird stuff? Was there you what go. You, was That's what exactly you said. it. Wild, sexy, weird stuff is exactly what it is. And, yeah. and without being prurient or anything like mm. that, you say that it's it, the dirty-minded will potentially find a place for themselves in this art. Exactly. So it comes about really from the time of the Florentine court mm. in the middle of the 16th century around Cosimo I, the Duke. And the Medici had to establish themselves as courtly. So they basically create what I would sort of argue is a society where it's like you have to be in the know, sort of emperor's new clothes. So if you raise an eyebrow to something that seems unreasonably erotic Mm. or strange in a certain way, then you're the one who's immediately showing off your ignorance rather than their filthiness, as the case may be. Yeah. Um, So I think that's kind of where it sort of starts from. And then it's also just, I think, such a wonderful reflection of genuinely who we are. You know, we are a mixture of good and bad and high and low and all of those things. So that coming into art and that roughly 80 year period is really important and really valuable, but it's hated since then. So people really deride it. Even still, there's books published that just call it vulgar. Vulgar mannerism is often used. And I'm sure they would not say that about the Sistine Chapel. No, but technically they should, because some of the things that they find problematic in mannerism are there, there, like the ignudi. Let's let's have a listen to what um, Valdemar Januszczak has to say about all of that. Now, it's important before you listen to this clip that you know that, that Valdemar was very fond of opal fruits yes. when, he, when he was a little boy <laughs> because of all the bright colours mm-hmm. of the opal fruits. So you'll hear a mention of that. But here he is explaining how Michelangelo, in fact, was the first mannerist. High up above the Vatican, lost in a world of his own, Michelangelo unleashed a new palette on art. Colours so active and bright they make your eyes pop. So there's all this exciting new colour bursting off the Sistine ceiling. And where Michelangelo led, mannerism followed. And this exciting new colour scheme of his was taken up by all sorts of artists in all sorts of places. In Spain, The great El Greco bought himself a new paint box of bright mannerist colours and splashed them around with passion. In the Netherlands, Martin van Heemskerk raided the opal fruit box and came up with wild combinations that feel completely un-Dutch. Here in Italy, where Michelangelo's influence was especially fierce, mannerist genius Pontormo gorged himself on the new colours. I thought for a minute he was going to say gorged himself on opal fruits. He was, <laughs> it's important to say you could, you could, if you could hear crinkling going on in the midst of that he's eating a bag of opal fruits as he tells us that. <laughs> he also eats with massive big spoonfuls of ricotta at some points that end up sort of still on his face as he's speaking. There's unusual choices. So is this, is it a mannerist style of presentation would you say? I think that's appropriate. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, it's just 
sort of bizarre enough. Yeah. Yeah. He does mention Pontormo there, and I must mm. say, this particular section of the, I saw the a little bit of the opening episode, and this particular section, I thought, oh, this holds some water, what he's saying here. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to look at Pontormo and a painting called Visitation at RTE Arena if you want to look at this and this is Mary and Elizabeth her cousin and this is the moment Mary knows at this stage she's pregnant and Elizabeth is also pregnant despite the fact that she's past childbearing age you might Mm -hmm. describe there are four people four women in this image Mm. uh, at RTE Arena if you want to see it just describe it to us Jess So the scene has been depicted many times before in Mm. Western art history before Pontormo but it tends to just have the virgin and her cousin and usually be in a kind of country setting something like that Here you have four figures right up to the front of the picture uh, plane they're incredibly elongated they're all unnaturally tall Uh, the virgin and her cousin are in profile looking at each other and holding on to each other so you get a lovely sense of the emotional mm. connection. But then weirdly, there's two other women who are sort of stepped back from staring them, at the staring camera, staring out. <laughs> and the one on the right, who's next to Elizabeth, looks like Elizabeth, but from the front. And the one on the left looks like the Virgin, uh, but again, frontally, even though the clothes colours they're wearing are different. And it's confused art historians for generations. Um, in this documentary, they suggest they're just handmaids, but it doesn't make sense because why would they be there so close, so prominent? And other art historians have presented the idea that it perhaps it's part of this bigger debate called the Paragone debate, which was which of the arts is the best. And it kind of mostly in this period is uh, talked about in relation to sculpture and painting as which is the best. So it might be a way of an artist showing the same two figures from multiple viewpoints at mm. once in a painting, which isn't usually achievable, but it is achievable in sculpture. And I think also notable are the colours of the dresses that they are wearing. They are quite garish, is maybe too strong, mm, but they're, they're they're quite acidy. Yeah. <laughs> a, uh, a neon touch to them. Yeah, and this is one thing that the documentary um, you know, emphasizes at this point that I think is spot on, is that those colours exist in the Sistine Chapel ceiling yeah. by Michelangelo. Interestingly, we didn't know quite so much until the ceiling was cleaned in the 1990s and it used to look much darker and mm. less of that sort of vibrant colour. So we know Pontormo went to Rome. We know he saw the works of Michelangelo. So he's bringing back that, but other elements of his work just doesn't fit with the high renaissance. The other thing that I wondered about, you know, this idea that if the if the two characters at the back who are facing out mm. looking at us are handmaids uh, and, and he's giving them the same face as the Virgin mm-hmm. and Elizabeth. There was a big issue at, the, at this stage and the, manner, the mannerism movement was about Maybe we see in the paintings the people that we don't normally get to see in the paintings. Is there part of that going on here? Yeah, and there's certainly a lot of rule breaking uh, in the Mannerist period. So you would have, you know, um, portraits of people you wouldn't usually get portraits of. It's the boom of the individual self-portrait. You know, that didn't really mm. exist before the Mannerist period. You might have an insertion of a figure into their work, but not uh, a self-portrait on its own. So that's very possible. I think the thing that's just too... Uh, um, unexplainable is why in a religious work that's this narrative that's about telling a moment of a story are two unknowns there staring at us. But of course if you said that to those who believe in mannerisms that that's your problem. Exactly. You should already know. You should should, make up your own mind on that one. (laughs) St. Sebastian seems to have been a figure of um, interest to those who are involved in this movement. I'll tweet Dosso Dossi's Painting of, and this is Saint Sebastian. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, I suppose quite often in in the case of Saint Sebastian, there is a there's a slightly erotic feel to the paintings that we get. I don't yeah. to you, Irene, if you want to see this one. Yeah, it's a bizarre thing because it's all of a sudden during the Renaissance, he goes from being an older man with a grey beard wearing armour to this incredibly sexy young guy with no clothes on, Mm. often called the Christian uh, Apollo. And it seems to be related to how in the Renaissance they wanted to depict the male form just as they saw it from classical antiquity. So the perfect example would be a saint who was martyred who must have had to logically take off his armour if he was going to be shot with arrows. So they get to show off what they consider the most important skill of an artist, which is to depict the male nude. The issue is, and according to Vasari, when he's writing in the 16th century, is that sometimes, as you rightly said, it could be a bit too erotic. But in the case of Vasari's story, he talks about a work by Fra Bartolomeo where he says it, the saint 
Saint Sebastian was so beautiful, it had to be taken down because women were going to confession saying they'd sinned just by looking at it, which gives you an insight into that. But the manners take it a step further. And in the case of the Dosso, uh, Dossi one, you can see the fabric of material sort of comes from behind his head, but then it goes through his legs and bunches at the front. So if you look at that long enough and imagine this as a sort of meditative piece that you're kneeling in front of praying, at some point you are going to start to question elements of it. And I think the sensuality is undeniable. Mm. And it's part of the reason why the reformers of the Reformation had such a problem with Catholic art because they said it's too sexy and incites yeah. you know, and lust. If, if you looked at it long enough, would you faint and would you have sinned is another question. That's a good for question. For another day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I just put one brief one up uh, mm. at RTE Arena, Agnolo Bronzino. And what I want to give a sense of here is just how much is going can be going on in a mannerist painting. Yeah. So this is the martyrdom of St. Lawrence. And mm. this is uh, not in the documentary, but one of my favourites. It's still in situ in Florence because it's a fresco. And it is the most bizarre, strange thing you've ever seen. It's the moment when the saint is grilled alive. So it should be a very tragic scene. Yeah. But it actually looks like... Like an alien. Yeah, like a, <laughs> big a, party. A, a big party or some fun in the gym. Yeah. I mean, and all these different twisted poses are very right. much what the mannerist thing is. So if it looks like uh, you're looking at complicated yoga poses, that's mannerism. Will you watch the rest of the documentary series? I will, because the thing to get to see these so well shot, it's beautiful, particularly yeah. for when it gets to Giulio Romano and things that are these immersive experience inside these frescoed rooms where the architecture is masked by the mm. painting. It's very hard to get a sense of that through individual photographs, so seeing it recorded. Plus, yeah. as I say, I think the fun presentation suits the topic. Okay. Bring your open fruits. Exactly. Watch. Okay. <laughs> Jess he's speaking to us there about mannerism, art's wildest movement. It's on Sky Arts and it starts tomorrow at 8pm. After a bit of a hiatus over the holiday period, there's a myriad of arts groups on tour at the moment. Among them is the Vincino Ensemble, currently midway through a tour. The six-piece boasts Finney and Collins on piano, along with a mix of string and wind musicians. The leader of the troupe is Nathan Sherman, founder and viola player with the Vincino Ensemble. Delighted that he is in studio with me this evening after a very successful night in Kilkenny, last night, I believe. We'll hear about that in a moment. But before we talk about the Vincino Ensemble... Let's listen to them playing the music of Brahms. his a clarinet quintet performed by the Ficino Ensemble and with me in studio is Nathan Sherman. It, it's absolutely beautiful music, the Brahms, and I wanted to give people a sense of what kind of chamber music you guys can actually play. I mean, the playing there is exquisite. Where was that recording oh, made? Thank you. Yeah, we did that recording in the Freemason Hall in, in Dublin City. Yeah. And the Brahms quintet how perfect is that for your particular ensemble? What do you think of that piece as a piece of chamber music? Oh, it's a masterpiece. Um, we've played it many times and it was uh, one of the first pieces that we got together to to record and we we loved it. And that's kind of where the, the project kind of bloomed from. Um, what, what do you think it was about that Brahms piece? Because it really is, I suppose, in some ways, it's kind of the high end, the high end. We were talking about high renaissance earlier on, but this is the high end of uh, romantic chamber music, really, in some ways, isn't it? It is, yeah. And it's it's like a, a small symphony, really. Um, just 
so much depth of sound, so much uh, clarity and um, melody, rich harmony. Mm. Um, it was written towards the end of Brahms's life, so it was very much. Uh, it's very much a reflective piece of of his life. Yeah, and we certainly get yeah. a sense of that in that recording uh, that that we heard. Now, lest I be accused of false advertising in this particular exhibition, you're not playing the Brahms on on no. your current tour, but it is very pretty much emblematic uh, emblematic of the sort of music that you do play. You are playing Mozart with the one of the divertimenti. Yes, we're doing. It's uh, it's funny. It's it's called the divertimento, which uh, was um, kind of used for light entertainment, mm. really. Um, but he he used the name really just because of the structure, which was six movements piece. But it's anything but light entertainment. It's really a, a virtuosic uh, piece. Lots of depth, uh, written also towards the end of his life, his short life. Yeah, I love the idea that because the divertimento is a little, it's a kind of light diversion from from something serious it's far from that far from that yes um he he was uh he had just written all his uh, his last three symphonies um uh, during during a summer and uh, he was big into gambling hmm. realized he was uh short of money <laughs> he uh, often found himself short of money did Mozart uh, didn't he yes and um he he wrote this piece uh for a for a friend and patron who was a fellow Mason and um, wrote it as a present, really, to yeah. try to get uh, money to get himself out <laughs> of some arrears. Here's a present, could I have some money, please? <laughs> um, the centrepiece of the tour very much, Nathan, is a sextet by the Polish composer uh, Krzysztof Penderecki. This is, a, this is a challenging piece, but tell us a bit about Penderecki himself and the nature of his composition, where, where he sits... Well, he's uh, he's um, he's only dead a few years. Mm. I think he died a couple of years ago. Um, and this piece was written in two thousand. Um, and he's a really interesting composer because he he's a Polish composer, and Poland after the Second World War was quite isolated. Um, mm. So there was. A flourish of really fresh ideas that were really unique to to Poland. I want to listen to this is the world um, premiere version, a recording of an excerpt from the first movement of the Penderecki Sextet. And it's funny that you say Poland was so isolated because what you get a sense of here is almost fragmentation. Even the instruments sound isolated from from each other. And that's just a, a little section there from the Penderecki sextet that the Ficino uh, Ensemble are bringing out on, on tour with them. And Nathan Sherman of the Ensemble is with me this evening. You really do get that sense. It is very interesting that it was written in the post-war period. You, for me, it, it's full of that fragmentation. Yeah, no, um, it was it was actually written in, in the year 2000. Uh, but he, Pen Penderecki is really interesting because he... he went from being really avant-garde, really full of uh, these crazy ideas, um, microtones and, you know, these mm. the really cr crazy sound worlds. And the further along he went in his life, he realized he, he wanted to become more traditional. So he, so he started kind of going back towards uh, more traditional ways of, of writing. So in 2000, we were probably getting more of his post-war feel than we got in, in the earlier parts of his composition. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming into us this evening, yes. Nathan. That's Nathan Sherman and the Ficino Ensemble will play Shame Satira in Tralee on Wednesday night. They're at the Source Arts Centre in Thurles on February the 2nd, West Cork Chamber Music Festival and Cork City at the Triscoll Arts Centre. They're right around the country, aren't they? And the tour will end in Dublin at the Hugh Lane Gallery. Full information on Ficino Ensemble 
GinoEnsemble.com for GinoEnsemble.com and that is our lot for this Monday evening. Uh, Niall Fitzmaurice was the researcher this evening. Broadcast coordinator was Ollie Hamilton. Damien Chanel was on sound and tonight's programme was produced by Sinead Egan. I won't be with you tomorrow night. Kay will be in the seat. I'll be back with you on Wednesday and John Creedon will be with you after the 8 o'clock news.